Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler. First and foremost, I need to put in a big thank you to Alex Case. My schedule got nuts for a little while here, and I thought we was going to have to end one of the podcast series just to keep up with everything. But thankfully, Alex stepped up and volunteered to take over this podcast for several months. So we've heard his coverage of, you know, most recently the Blade trilogy. Prior to that, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. So I greatly appreciate the fact that he stepped in and helped out to keep the podcast pretty much on schedule. There were a few delays because it took me some time to post his episodes. But in any event, we still managed to get you out one a month. Now, as you may have heard in other episodes of these podcasts, there are four episodes remaining in Silver Screen Superheroes. And then come January, its spot on the podcasting schedule is going to be replaced with Make Me Watch It, where I will podcast about movies I own but have never seen that the readers and listeners are voting for. So I'll just watch whatever has the largest number of votes. But down to business. This month, we are looking at the Green Lantern film from 2011, starring Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan, originally released in June 17th, 2011. Now, this is one that was going to be used by DC as the cornerstone of their Justice League franchise. Jeff Johns had shown tremendous success with the comic book franchise from Green Lantern Rebirth on rejuvenating it in the comic books. They were hoping that by bringing him over as the creative officer to have a lot more input on movies, that they could turn it around on the theatrical side. For the past several years, they had some very successful Batman movies, Catwoman, had not been a success. The tail end of the Superman series from the 80s had not been the success they were hoping for, and they were looking for another hit to start going toe-to-toe with Marvel with their theatrical releases. This came out the same year as Captain America, the first Avenger. So the idea of the Green Lantern Corps, or Green Lanterns in general, at least from the 1959 reboot on, is that they are essentially intergalactic police officers. The entire universe has been broken down into 3,600 segments. There's one Green Lantern per segment, and they've got the Green Lantern rings, which are basically tools for willpower that allow them to create constructs that do anything they can imagine as long as they've got the willpower and concentration to make it happen. This is my favorite DC Comics concept. I was really looking forward to this film, and working up to it, I read every issue of Green Lantern, including Showcase, from Hal Jordan's first appearance, right up until the date of publication. So my Green Lantern collection is fairly complete, using a lot of trade paperbacks for the old stuff, because I just don't have the budget to buy those showcase issues. Not when I could spend about 20 bucks or so on black and white reprints of the whole set, plus the other early ones, rather than a few thousand for the same issues. Although they do suffer with a lack of color. Color is pretty important to Green Lantern stories. So I was really looking forward to this, and I quite enjoyed it opening night. Sadly, this is one of those movies that I enjoy less every time I watch it. I'll get into the details later, but I just feel there are two major issues with it. One is that it's overstuffed. I get that they're trying to launch a franchise, but the content here would have been best dealt with in two films, not with one. As a result, there's just too much going on, there's no breathing room, and and as you'd expect when a studio hires Stuart Baird to edit, they're aiming for a particular runtime to get a certain number of screenings out opening weekend to drive that opening weekend box office. And as a result of those cuts, they kept the expensive CGI shots they'd invested in that make for flashy trailers 
and lost some of the character work that can be found in the extended edition on Blu-ray and DVD and in the deleted scenes of the theatrical edition. So the IMDb user score on this one is 5.6 out of 10, and that's at the time of this recording based on 224,409 votes. Now, looking at the breakdown, sometimes the mean median mode gets skewed because you get a lot of people voting movies as either just one or just 10. This one doesn't seem to show that. It really does look like a bell curve. And because you could only vote by integers, the peak is at six. So 24.3% of the voting population consider this movie a six out of 10. It is most popular in the demographic breakdown amongst females aged above 45. They are giving it a 6.1 out of 10. There's two groups that gave it a 5.2 on average, the 17 members of the IMDb staff and males under 18. So all the demographics do break down into that range. Well, I think it's flawed. I do think it's a little bit better than that, particularly when you watch it in the extended cut. Now, this is one that has a mix of inspiration from the comics and not. And I said there were two major problems. One of them was that editing for runtime and CGI rather than character moments. The other one comes down to having Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan. Now, a lot of people have said that Ryan Reynolds is what ruined the movie. I disagree. Ryan Reynolds and Martin Campbell did not get along on set. Reynolds did not have a pleasant time in the movie because of that. And a lot of that stems from something that's not Reynolds' fault. He was the studio's first choice. Martin Campbell wanted to go with Bradley Cooper, who people now know as Rocket Raccoon. And the studio cast Reynolds behind director Martin Campbell's back without even notifying him until after the fact. So that caused some understandable tension, but it's certainly not Ryan Reynolds' fault. But again, I don't consider that the problem. The problem is that Ryan Reynolds, as he appears in the script, is written as the kind of character where Ryan Reynolds springs to mind as the type of actor who could play him. I'm not saying he doesn't have the range to play Hal Jordan as portrayed in the comics, but this is not Hal Jordan as he's portrayed in the comics. The comic book Hal Jordan is more like William Shatner's Captain Kirk with a power ring although he appeared in comics seven years before Star Trek hit the air. The original inspiration for Hal Jordan was actually Paul Newman. And the original inspiration for Carol Ferris was Elizabeth Taylor. Now, Paul Newman in the 1950s and 60s was a magnificent template for Hal Jordan. I could really see that. But there's nothing in Ryan Reynolds' career thus far that reminds me of the work of Paul Newman. So the basic plot is that Aubin Sewer is a Green Lantern who is in a massive transport ship because he's about to be doing an evacuation of an entire planet when he's notified that it's no longer necessary because the planet is dead. It's been attacked by some unknown threat. That unknown threat attacks Aben Sur, mortally wounding him. Sur takes an escape pod and lands on Earth, but not before he transmits back to the Green Lantern Corps that the threat is parallax. Now, when Sur lands, his ring goes through the selection process and finds Hal Jordan as a local candidate to become a Green Lantern. The comic book requirements for the Green Lantern are that they're honest and fearless. In the movie, the honesty part isn't there, possibly because it's hard to reconcile that with a character who has a secret identity. So Hal is basically a screw-up. He's irresponsible, immature, but a very good pilot, and definitely a risk-taker, which comes in when you've got a man without fear. The ring drafts him, and his insecurities start to come to the forefront where he doesn't think he's up to the task. He gets trained by the Guardians and by the other Green Lanterns, notably Tomar Ray, Kilowog, and Sinestro, 
in a rather brief montage before he quits but is somehow allowed to keep the ring. Meanwhile, Hector Hammond is doing an autopsy on Abin Sur and ends up getting infected by Parallax and becomes one of his agents, giving him all sorts of mental powers that also help deteriorate his physical state, so he ends up working in a wheelchair while his head enlarges, not to the proportions that they are in the comics, but I personally think that's a good thing, because the way the comic book body shrinks and the head grows, his head is about 95% of the character, and I don't think those proportions would work on screen. There's a lot of buy-in that we're already asking the audience to accept with the Green Lantern concept, and I don't think that was a good part of it. So Ryan Reynolds is probably best known for the superhero role of Deadpool. We discussed him a little bit with the X-Men Origins Wolverine film, where he kind of sort of played that role for the first time. He played Wade Wilson. And since then, he's managed to get Deadpool out earlier this year, around February 2016, that performed far above expectations. And the sequel to Deadpool is on track to come out in 2018. And while I don't think he's a good fit for the Hal Jordan role. As I said, none of his roles have been similar to the Hal Jordan from the comic material. I think he's a great fit for Deadpool and quite enjoy him in that role. Now, while filming this, he did meet his now wife and mother of his child, Blake Lively. She's got 19 acting credits to her name, starting in 1998's Sandman as Trixie or the Tooth Fairy. She was Bridget in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, as well as in the sequel. She was on Saturday Night Live. And this was probably her biggest role to date when it first came out in 2011. She'd also been on Gossip Girl with Serena Vanderwoodson from 2007 on, which would be her next biggest role. IMDb says that she's also known for The Age of Adeline from 2015 and The Town from 2010. And to give her credit when credit is due, while I didn't believe her in a lot of it, apparently my favorite line in the movie was her ad lib when she and Hal Jordan as Green Lantern are on their balcony, and it takes her a few seconds to recognize him, and says something along the lines of, I've seen you naked, you don't think I'm going to recognize you just because I can't see your cheekbones? It was a nice twist on the superhero secret identity, one of my more enjoyable moments, and you know, clearly the way that scene is structured and written, and the rest of the script goes, the outline did have her recognizing him, but that particular line with how she reveals it was also enjoyable, and as I said, apparently her ad lib. Now, Peter Sarsgaard plays Hector Hammond. He's got 53 acting credits to his name. He's best known for this, Jarhead, Orphan, and Flight Plan. And again, this is a case where I have issues with the character, but not with the casting or not with the betrayal. There's just issues at the script level. And apparently the original script had very little of parallax in this film. That would have been a third act reveal. And Hector Hammond would have been the focus as the lead villain for this picture, leaving Parallax for the sequel, which is the approach that I felt they should have taken pretty much right from the start. Now, the best casting in the film is easily Mark Strong as Thal Sinestro. Now, he's best known for being Merlin and Kingsman, The Secret Service, Jim Perdue in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Lord Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes, and Stuart Menzies in The Imitation Game. But he just personified Sinestro here. I've been happy in everything I've seen him in, and he's got quite the prolific career going back to 1989. Sinestro was nice. I also like that they did start with him as a Green Lantern, even though in the comics the first time we see him, he's already a Yellow Lantern. It was only retcon that he was the greatest of the Green Lanterns. I do enjoy that we're actually seeing him turn into Sinestro and why. 
in the course of this film as an ongoing subplot. He's got a bit of a character arc there. Now, Tim Robbins plays Hector Hammond's father as a senator, who's really only here to justify having Hector still around Hal and Carol. They took a lot of liberties with Hector's personal life. The comics have never revealed his parents, nor did he know Hal Jordan or Carol Ferris as a child, as they kind of sort of allude to in the theatrical cut and explicitly state in the extended edition. All you know in the theatrical cut is that he and Hal recognize each other the first time they share the screen together. There's no explanation as to why, because the people who wrote the screenplay were not expecting that scene to get cut. J.O. Sanders is known for this, where he plays Carl Ferris, Carol's father, as well as The Day After Tomorrow, JFK, and Daylight. He's got 136 credits to his name, with a lot of important sort of minor characters, not too many lead roles. Taika Waititi plays Tom Kalmaku, who thankfully does not have the rather derogatory nickname he has in the comics. Originally, he was considered an Eskimo, rather than using the now accepted term Inuit. I don't know if that was recognized as the accepted term in 1959, but because he was an Eskimo, well, they called him Pie Face, you know, Eskimo Pie. It's one of the most embarrassing parts of DC's history, I would say. They wrote the character out, brought him back a little bit later as Hal's friend without using the nickname, and then after the reboots in Secret Origin, that nickname is used exclusively by one racist person at Ferris Air. We also get Angela Bassett in this film. She plays Amanda Waller in this. Amanda Waller has been recast for the Suicide Squad. She's got an 84-credit acting history to her name, including American Horror Story, Close to the Enemy, and a number of other films. She is best known for Meet the Robinsons, Malcolm X, Boys in the Hood, and Strange Days. I actually quite like her as Dr. Waller. Tamura Morrison is in here as Abensur under four to five hours worth of makeup that renders him pretty much unrecognizable, but he's probably best known for Jango Fett and Boba Fett in the Star Wars prequels. But he's also had other rules in Once Were Warriors, Speed 2 Cruise Control, and so forth. Now, Jeffrey Rush has been acting since 1981. It was Shine in 1996 that really put him on the map with Oscar nominations and whatnot. He also appeared in Shakespeare in Love, Mystery, House on Haunted Hill, Quills, Frida, Finding Nemo, and most notably, the Pirates of the Caribbean series as Captain Hector Barbosa. He is the voice of Tomar Ray. Now, Michael Clark Duncan probably had some of his shortest work ever in this as the voice of Kilowog. He just has a few lines in his couple of scenes, but his credits go back to 1995. He's been working consistently, partly because he is a very sizable man. You get a very distinct look from him. He's best known for The Green Mile, Sin City, Planet of the Apes, the 2001 version, and for playing the Kingpin in Daredevil which we will be discussing next month. Unfortunately, he passed away at age 54. You know, even though he was a very large man, as they say, even though you're that size, you've got the same size heart as everybody else, and he did pass away due to cardiac arrest. Now, Clancy Brown is in this. He's known as Victor Kruger in the original Highlander, which is what really put him on the map. He was Sergeant Zim in Starship Troopers, and he also played opposite Tim Robbins in The Shawshank Redemption as Captain Hadley, but I suspect that people listening to a Silver Screen Superheroes podcast were known for his other voice work. Here he's the voice of Parallax, but he was the voice of Lex Luthor in the Superman and Justice League cartoons. 
He's been the voices of Taskmaster, Uncle Ben, the Phantom Rider, and the Red Hulk in Ultimate Spider-Man. He's, you know, Razor and other characters, including Chris Bradford, in the 2012 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles TV series. He's Mr. Krabs and more in the SpongeBob SquarePants series. Sheriff August Corbin in Sleepy Hollow. He's in the new Daredevil series for a couple of episodes. He's the Red Hulk in Hulk and the Agents of Smash. General Wade Eiling in The Flash. So he has had quite a number of voice acting jobs to his name, which makes sense. He's got a very deep and resonant voice. Director Martin Campbell is probably best known for his work in the James Bond franchise, including GoldenEye, which introduced Pierce Brosnan as Bond, and the Casino Royale, which introduced Daniel Craig as Bond. He also directed The Mask of Zorro. He's had 33 acting credits, and this is the fourth of those four most notable movies on the IMDb list. Now, a lot of what we have here comes down to the screenwriting, and part of it is that there were three people who worked together and have proven that they can work together effectively, particularly on superhero projects, who did the outline for the story. Those three are Greg Berlanti, Michael Green, and Mark Guggenheim. They are experienced comic book writers, and they're also the sort of brain trust behind the TV incarnations of Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, and The Legends of Tomorrow. And if you've seen those, you understand that these guys get superhero content. Now, the final draft of this script, when it was rewritten at studio request, was by Michael Goldenberg. He's got a grand total of six writing credits to his name, including Bed of Roses from 1996, Contact from 97, Peter Pan from 2003, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix from 2007, Green Lantern, and then the announced but unreleased Artemis Fowl. So a resume like that, it looks like he might often be brought in as the uncredited script doctor who just steps up to rewrite things at studio request, and not necessarily with his name in the credits. Typically, he only shows up if the script doctor makes significant enough changes that are kept that they have a certain amount of page count behind them. And I think that what maybe we're dealing with here. Score is composed by James Newton Howard, who's best known for his work on Hunger Games Catching Fire, Michael Clayton, Maleficent, and ER, although he's got 70 credits to his name, including a number of others. And that includes things like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Dion Beebe was the cinematographer in this. And this is often dark. Part of the issue with the cinematography is that the 3D conversion wasn't known to be coming down the pipe when they started filming. We've already discussed editor Stuart Baird, whose superhero credits include the first two Superman films. But at the end of the day, you know, how the franchise does is based on that box office and really only that. The estimated budget for this film was $200 million. The worldwide box office total as of September 29th, 2011, so about three months after it came out, was only $219,851,000. And $172. So, our general rule of thumb is that a movie has to make anywhere from two to three times its budget, depending on which studio produced it, in order to be considered profitable. This was just a little bit over one time its budget. So, the sequels that were announced and greenlit before this movie came out are not going to happen. The next Green Lantern film will be Green Lantern Corps in 2020. And at this point, it's not clear if they're even going to be using Hal Jordan. In the comics, there have been a number of Green Lanterns, the human ones including the original Alan Scott, who was in the original script, but was cut out as sort of a mentor role, originally acting as the president of the United States at the time. The other Green Lanterns were Guy Gardner, who was also cut from this, John Stewart, who was considered, but 
not really written into a script, only into outlines, Kyle Rayner and others. To a lot of the audience, Jon Stewart was their Green Lantern because the most prominent use of Green Lantern in alternative media in the few years leading up to this was the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited series, both of which used Jon Stewart as the Green Lantern. And that actually might have been a better plan for this film was to use Jon Stewart instead. Rumor has it that Jon Stewart is sort of the front runner for the focus Green Lantern in the Green Lantern Corps movie from 2020, but there's nothing official on that. But ultimately, this was not a profitable film, which is why rather than using this as the cornerstone of the Justice League, they are using Man of Steel instead. So that's all we have to say about the Green Lantern film. Please join us next month when we take a look at Daredevil in both the theatrical and director's cuts. And as far as the theatrical versus director's cut goes, Daredevil shows the most significant difference I've seen in any superhero property. We will follow that in November with a look at Elektra, and then in December with a look at The Incredibles to wrap up Silver Screen Superheroes before we go on to Make Me Watch It. If you'd like to vote on the titles for Make Me Watch It, you can head to Bureau42.com and go down the right-hand sidebar to find links to the voting areas. You could send feedback on this and any other podcast you want to to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com. And feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use. Finally, thank you for listening.